Good evening, everybody, and um, welcome uh, to this event this evening. Um, I'm absolutely uh, delighted to be here. My name is Barbara Roach, uh, and I chair the board of the Migration Museum Project. Um, first of all, um, you know, much thanks to, uh, uh, to, to LSE straight away for at least providing me with a lectern that I can see over the top of. <laughs> I'm really, really grateful to them. What are we? Well, the Migration Museum aims to tell the really inspiring story of migration to and from this country and to reflect the important part that it's played in the national story. While there are very, very many museums around the country, both national and local, that tell part of the story, our aim is to tell the national story as a whole. It's not a new story, it's an old story and one waiting to be told. Of course, the scale of migration has changed in recent decades, but people have been coming to the shores even since the time when there was no one there here, from Angles and Saxons to the medieval Jewish community to Huguenots, the story goes on and on. And also, of course, there are now 6 million Britons who live abroad and about 60 million people around the globe claim to have British ancestry. So it's a long one, it's riveting, it's rich, it's complicated, sometimes difficult, always engaging. And we want to put that story in a dedicated, permanent institution of its own at the heart of the national consciousness where we think it rightly belongs. We want to talk about the contribution that migrants make to this country, but we don't just want it to be a mere celebration, important though that is. It's a complicated and, as I've said, sometimes a difficult history. But we want people to engage with the story in new and refreshing ways. We want to do two main things. We want to provide a museum that is genuinely popular. There is something in Britain's migration story for absolutely everyone. Um, as Robert Winder, our chair uh, this evening, says, we've all come from somewhere else. It just depends on how long ago. We just need to dig deep about it. That way people connect both with the national picture and with each other. We want to provide a space for sober, well-informed debate the issues that really matter to people. And we know that people want to talk about it. What we can provide and what is urgently needed is a place where we can have grown-up conversations about migration. And in that way, we think we can contribute in a small way to a better public conversation about this vital issue. So, just before we begin this evening, I want to have some thank yous right at the beginning. To Biku Parikh, who's here this evening, for not only sponsoring uh, this event this evening, but also coming up with the idea of having uh, this event in the first place. Uh, and your vision, uh, Biku, for suggesting that we um, have an annual lecture is something that we are so uh, grateful for. To LSE for hosting uh, what we hope might be the first of very, very many events. Uh, to Louise from the, the LSE and also to my own colleague Andrew uh, from the museum Migration Museum Project. We're very grateful for all your help. And to, to Robert, Robert Winder, our chair this evening and author of the absolutely fantastic book 
uh, bloody foreigners, which has been a real inspiration uh, to us at, uh, at, the, at the project. I'm really looking forward uh, this evening. Uh, Michael, it's, you know, I'm so pleased that you agreed to give this first of our annual lecture. I'm really looking forward to it. I know we're going to have a wonderful and inspired evening. And if you do feel inspired, can I encourage you um, at the end uh, of the evening when we've got a, a reception to look around for people with, mine seems to have disappeared, <laughs> with badges. Anybody who's got a badge on from the project, please go up to them. Speak to them about our, our work. There's a, I think there's a, a form to fill in. Please do that. Um, there is a place for you working with us, and we would love to have your support. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, well, thank you, Barbara, and thank you, everyone, for coming tonight. Uh, it's fantastic to see this... Uh, great auditorium so full. Um, thank you for your remarks. My book, Bloody Foreigners, is um, about 10 years old now, so it's already out of date, and given the nature of the conversation that continues to go on about it, it in a way it hasn't really changed. Um, as you said, my purpose was simple, really. It was to just tell the story of immigration from the time the ice melted, more or less, to now. So, and I thought by being panoramic and taking the long view and trying to find some context and perspective, it would pour a bit of calm on the sort of troubled waters that often are stirred by this topic. And um, I've obviously completely failed because <laughs> it's been front page news for about the last five years, and especially in the last six months. And I think in the coming months, it's going to become even more shrill for all the reasons uh, we know about. And that's why this museum that Barbara is. Uh, chairing the project to develop is so important, such a good idea. I'm a keen supporter of it. I think its time has come. In fact, it's long overdue. I think there are across the country, there are museums for chopsticks and balloons and birds' nests and toy trains, and these are fantastic, but uh, that means there must also be space for a museum that tells this amazing story, such a far-reaching and deep story about the way Britain is, its past and its future. And so that's what the project is aiming to do. The only thing I think Barbara may have very decorously and politely omitted to mention is that we're just at the beginning of the great fundraising adventure, which is going to be so enjoyable, as you all know. Um, there's no question of passing a hat around. But those of you, if anyone plays tennis with the Sultan of Brunei, or knows someone who does, or has experience or knowledge in this field, when you do buttonhole someone after this event over a glass of wine, uh, please feel free to pitch in and help. I think we're looking for all the help with that specific project of raising money for this good idea that we can get. Um, some very boring things. Um, mobile phones off, of course, and I've been advised that there's a hashtag if you want to use Twitter, uh, which is LSEMMP. I'm sure you'll all want to do that all the time. How you'll do it with your phones off. Uh, I leave you. In fact, maybe it'll be better if you turn your phones up to full volume and uh, play around with the ringtones. That'll be making it much nicer for everybody. Mm, lovely. Um, leaves me only to introduce uh, our guest lecturer tonight to give the first of these Lord Perrick lectures, um, Michael Rosen. You'll all know him, celebrated author of great children's books. Those of us who have children have spent many hundreds of hours curled up on beds reading his books aloud. Some of them we got a bit tired of, but not many. <laughs> um, Good. 
No, he's absolutely brilliant. I mean, I just checked this morning, and I think at the last count he's written 23,000 books or something of that nature. Uh, no, he's absolutely prolific. He's written plays, biographies, poetry, political commentary, all kinds of things. He's an absolutely uh, prolific thing. And he's also incredibly popular in schools because he's a maestro at passing on the enthusiasm for reading and literature and books to children. He's absolutely brilliant at it. And we're delighted to welcome him here tonight. He's an immigrant himself, of course. He comes from the very wild badlands of Pinner in Middlesex. Um, but we're glad he's made it all this way. And uh, we're looking forward to hearing what he has to say. He's going to address the subject of language and migration, a very important one, of course, because the way we uh, talk about migration uh, not just doesn't just express, but also, I suppose, betrays the way we think about it. And even more important, it affects the way, we, it affects the way we, we will continue to think about it. So now I'll leave you in the hands of Michael Rosen. Thank you, Robert. Thanks very much. Thank you, Robert. Thank you. Good evening, everybody. Brothers, sisters, chaverim. Um, before I start, I thought maybe we could do a quick survey of our lived experiences and close acquaintance with migration. And I'm doing this so that we can bring this quick survey with us through my talk, because far too often the conversation about migration takes place as if people who have experience of migration are somewhere else. They're kind of outside over there, as Maurice Sendak put it. So this mini questionnaire I'm about to do is really the tip of an iceberg, the bottom part of the iceberg being what we might call our cultures of migration, cultures that often lie obscured by the dominant rhetoric about migration. So here we go, some questions. How many people in the room have moved from another country or countries to live and or work in the UK, short, medium or long term? How many have done that? Hmm. There we go. Look at each other, please. <laughs> Admire each other. How many people in the room, put your hands down, as teachers say, how many people in the room have at least one parent born in a country other than the UK? There you go, look at ourselves. How many people have at least one grandparent born in a country other than the UK? How many people in the room have lived in a country other than the UK for more than one year? More than five years? More than ten years? And now let's do spouses and partners. How many people have a spouse or partner who comes originally from a non-UK country? Look at each other. Okay. How many people who have a spouse or partner who has at least one grand... How many people have a spouse or partner who has at least one grandparent who comes from a non-UK country? And now one to include all forms of migration, migration of any kind, some of which isn't called migration, it's called moving. Or being moved. Here we go. How many people in the room are not living in the same house or flat they lived in as a child? <laughs> All right, let's do that the other way around. How many people in the room are living in the same house or flat they lived in as a child? Well, two up, the, one up the back there, one there, one there. Very good. You non-migrators. Lovely. <laughs> Though you may have answered yes to the other questions, of course. Just yes. 
So I'll come back to this matter of the culture of migration in thinking about my own background later, but let's start in the eye of the storm, the conversations about migration that are going on at this very moment in the world of politics and the media. And in this part of the talk, I want to be specific about the language around migrants, the language that colours the meaning of the word migrant, immigrant and immigration. So here's Barack Obama on November the 20th uh, last week. Over the past few years, I've seen the determination of immigrant fathers who work two or three jobs without taking a dime from the government, and at risk uh, any moment of losing it all just to build a better life for their kids. I've seen the heartbreak and anxiety of children whose mothers might be taken away from them just because they didn't have the right papers. I've seen the courage of students who, except for the circumstances of, the, of their birth, are as American as Malia or Sasha. Students who bravely come out as undocumented in hopes they could make a difference in the country they love. These people, our neighbours, our classmates, our friends, they did not come in here in search of a free ride or an easy life. They came to work and study and serve in our military and, above all, contribute to America's success. Tomorrow I'll travel to Las Vegas and meet with some of these students, including a young woman named Astrid Silva. Astrid was brought to America when she was four years old. Her only possessions were a cross, her doll, and the frilly dress she had on. When she started school, she didn't speak any English. She caught up to other kids by reading newspapers and watching PBS, public service broadcasting. And she became a good student. Her father worked in landscaping. Her mom cleaned other people's homes. They wouldn't let Astrid apply to a technology magnet school, not because they didn't love her, but because they were afraid the paperwork would out her as an undocumented immigrant. So she applied behind their back and got in. Still, she mostly lived in the shadows until her grandmother, who visited her every year from Mexico, passed away and she couldn't travel to the funeral without risk of being found out and deported. It was around that time she decided to begin advocating for herself and others like her, and today Astrid Silver is a college student working on her third degree. Are we a nation that kicks out a striving, hopeful immigrant like Astrid, or are we a nation that finds a way to welcome her in? Scripture tells us that we shall not oppress a stranger, for we know the heart of a stranger. We were strangers once too. My fellow Americans, we are and always will be a nation of immigrants. We were strangers once too. And whether our forebears were strangers who crossed the Atlantic or the Pacific or the Rio Grande... We are here only because this country welcomed them in and taught them that to be an American is about something more than what we look like or what our last names are or how we worship. What makes us Americans is our shared commitment to an ideal that all of us are created equal and all of us have the chance to make of our lives what we will. That's the country our parents and grandparents and generations before them built for us. That's the tradition we must uphold. That's the legacy we must leave for those who are yet to come. Now, here's Tory MP Bernard Jenkin <laughs> on November the 24th, BBC Radio 4 Today programme. He cited Alan Milburn, who spoke of Britain becoming a bifurcated nation. Then he said, One of the things that's keeping low pay depressed is the endless supply of cheap labour coming in from EU8, the Eastern European countries, the recent entrance to the European Union. This is causing real problems in hospitals, in schools, the provision of public services, shortage of housing. We need to address this in the public interest. By the way, on the programme earlier in the interview, Bernard Jenkins showed his great familiarity with poor people by doubting if the BBC 
employed people on low pay. Perhaps he doesn't know of the thousands of people working for the BBC as runners, researchers, cleaners, trainees, cafe staff and so on, many of whom are not only his special interest group, he seems to be saying, people on low pay, but are also migrants or children or grandchildren of migrants. But then why would he know that? And here's Nigel Farage, who, as we'll hear, has a very intimate acquaintance with migrants. This is from the Daily Telegraph, 16th of May 2014, as written by Matthew Holhouse, the paper's political correspondent. Mr Farage was asked to justify claims made earlier this year that he feels, quote, uncomfortable and, quote, awkward on trains where nobody speaks English and parts of Britain are now, quote, a foreign land. He said in February, I got on the train the other night, it was rush hour from Charing Cross. It was a stopper going out and we stopped at London Bridge, New Cross, Hither Green. It was not till we got past Grove Park that I could hear English being audibly spoken in a carriage. Does that make me feel slightly awkward? Yes, it does. Mr Farage's wife, Kirsten, is German and his children are bilingual. Mr Farage said she speaks English outside the home. Uh, now, this is the, uh, the interview that took place on the radio station that the Telegraph is reporting. You felt uncomfortable about people speaking foreign languages, despite the fact presumably your own wife does when she phones home to Germany, said James O'Brien, the host of LBC Radio. Mr Farage replied, I don't suppose she speaks it on the train, you know. <laughs> That's the point I'm making. Mr Farage stood by his view, given in a recent interview, that he would be, quotes, concerned, unquote, if he had Romanian neighbours. I was asked a question, if a group of Romanian men moved in next to you, would you be concerned? If you lived in London, I think you would be, he said. He said the crime statistics relating to Romanian immigrants are, quote, eye-watering. Asked why that would be different to German children moving in next door, he replied, quote, you know what the difference is, unquote. He added, we want an immigration policy that is not just based on controlling, not just quantity, but quality. I'm not, de I'm still with Farage, I'm not demonising anybody, just clear that it's not me saying this, I'm, just in case you wondered, I'm demonising a political class who has had an open door allowing things like this to happen. Mr O'Brien, remember he's the radio guy, claimed there is an avalanche of bigotry emerging from UKIP and it represents deeply divisive and racist ideas. He accused Mr Farage of conflating the trend of primary school children who speak English as a second language with those who cannot speak English at all. Mr Farage said the trend shows the need for tighter immigration controls. But the former category would include Mr Farage's own children. Mr O'Brien said, the point you're making is that children in the East End are full of children who can't speak English. I want you to recognise that's not true, he said. Most bilingual children in this country are children like yours. End of the article. So, from Barack Obama to Bernard Jenkin and Nigel Farage, all using language about migration but in very different terms. Obama has chosen to highlight the migrant and invested that word with ideas of struggle, incredible hard work, sacrifice and bravery. He then went on to picture the reception of the migrant in America as traditional, righteous and historically normal. He posited the idea that everyone is a migrant. He also made a point of drawing on a notion of equality enshrined in the founding principles of the United States. What was also crucial here was that he was suggesting that these ideas and principles were bigger and more important than illegality. 
Or at the very least, the government could and should overcome the matter of illegality. So though illegality is often attached to the word migrant, Obama suggests the government could side with the migrant to overcome the, the illegality, or in language terms, detach illegality from the word migrant. Needless to say, there are people who are appalled by what Obama has said, and many will take it to prove, in inverted commas, prove that he is, as they have always said, a foreigner and a communist Muslim. <laughs> or is that a Muslim communist? I've never got so. From a radical perspective, it's possible to raise an eyebrow at one aspect of the speech. The US is indeed a nation of migrants, including the First Nation peoples who migrated into what we call North America any time from about 40,000 years ago. It's a pity they didn't get a mention too. There's also the question of whether America is as different from other countries as Obama suggests. Is there a country in the world that is not a nation of immigrants? Is there, or migrants? Is there any nation in the world that is made up of only the descendants of people who lived in that precise landmass for, what should we say, 40,000 years? I suspect that Obama was drawing on folk memory and American people's knowledge of family history when he says, nation of immigrants, rather than making an observation about the history of all human beings everywhere. I'll make that observation instead. We are a world of migrants. Now for Bernard Jenkin. Jenkin draws on what some might regard as a radical image, a bifurcated nation, meaning the split between rich and poor. Humane though that this might seem to be, migrants in his language are not people. He doesn't even use the word migrant. We don't hear a Jenkin equivalent of Obama's Astrid Silva, or the father with three jobs, or the woman cleaning in people's homes, or the children who are anxious that their mother might be deported. In Bernard Jenkins' language, migrants are, quote, an endless supply of cheap labour. What can we say about this? Well, first off, whatever it is, it's not endless. There are finite numbers involved. Then, it's not actually a supply, because no one is supplying them. And the phrase cheap labour is a handy way of dehumanising people by reducing them to the price of their labour. That is to say, a cost. But labour is a cost purely and only from the point of view of an employer. Working people don't look at their payslips and say, ah, here's my cost. <laughs> now let's remind ourselves of what, according to Jenkin, these costs, these massed economic units do. They, quote, keep low pay depressed. Now, I don't know exactly what goes on in boardrooms. I've only ever seen them in documentaries or mocked up in film and TV. But someone tell me, what are those people doing in there if they're not doing all they can to, quote, keep low pay depressed? I thought this was what shareholders want them to do. In their terms, isn't this keeping the cost of labour down? How in the Jenkin universe is the dehumanised mass of labour that Jenkin shakes in front of us able to do that? Aren't they living people who turn up and apply for a job? Throughout most of my childhood and adolescence, I heard employers telling a terrible story. They were being brought to their knees by vicious people called trade unionists who did all they could to stop low pay being depressed. Then the story goes, the heavens opened and we finally got a prime minister who put a stop to all that. I raise this in order to clarify why would Bernard Jenkin, of all people, object to low pay being depressed. After all, it's his party which says that the way to having, and I quote, a resilient economy is through the wise and necessary implementation of a low-wage policy. So what can his objection be? 
Or has he just found a bit of populist language for the Today programme to attach to the idea that he has of migrants? Then he says that migration is causing problems for the public services. So here the migrant is now attached to an image, the image of overcrowded schools, packed hospital waiting rooms and tiny huddles of hard-pressed social workers. Now you and I may have noticed that these particular images have in the last four years been attached to something else altogether, the resilient economy, which we're told can only be achieved through Bernard Jenkins' government wisely and sagely cutting back on schools, hospitals and social services. As Dennis Skinner put it in the House of Commons when the new UKIP MP, Mark Reckless, took his seat this week, I have a United Nations heart. Our public services, apparently having problems from migrants, according to Jenkin, also happen to be and have been staffed by hundreds of thousands of migrants since the 1950s. So what is it, staffed or besieged? And if it's besieged, how does cutting the services help? I suspect that this has much more to do with populism than logic. The idea of the migrant is attached to blame as Jenkin makes them solely responsible for the effects of the cuts that his government implements. And he somehow manages not to attach the word to praise, as Dennis Skinner did, for the decades of hard work running the public services, which he claims to want to defend on our behalf. Now to Farage. First, there's a problem for him. He claims he couldn't hear English being spoken between London Bridge and Grove Park. I travel all over the London transport systems almost every day, and the only time I've been in a carriage where there's no English being spoken at all is maybe when a couple of classes of French or German students fill it up, or schoolchildren. But that's not what he means, is it? He wants to invoke something that he hopes will appear more sinister. I very much doubt that he's telling the truth. After all, a great proportion of migrants speak English because English people migrated to their countries. You'll know the old gag about the migrant, about the migrant from one of the countries of the British Empire who's asked why his family live in England, and he says, we're here because you were there. <laughs> Gags like that, it should be said, are part of an alternative and resistant language of migration. So I suspect that Farage is dabbling in something rather nasty here. He wants to conjure up a picture of a public service taken over and blocked up by foreigners. The reason why you or I are crammed into the train at Russia, he's saying, is because it's full of migrants. Crowded trains, he suggests, are nothing to do with the resources spent on transport in this country, but entirely down to people who've come to the UK to work, sometimes driving the very train that Farage is sitting on while he curses migrants. Even so, let's imagine for a moment that Farage is right. There's a carriage full of people not speaking English. What precisely is the objection here? Should there be a rule about speaking English in public spaces? Should Farage's awkwardness count be respected in law? <laughs> Has he never been on the Costa Brava? Or in a cafe in southwest France where you can hear a lot of English being spoken? In his blokey way, is he going to point out how awkward that must be for the Spanish and French natives? Or is awkwardness a one-way street? In fact, it rather seems as if the only awkward thing going on for Farage is that he keeps going on about this stuff about foreigners even as he lives with a migrant. A migrant who we discover does that suspect thing of speaking another language. And as the interviewer points out, this person almost certainly speaks to her relatives on the phone in that language whilst living in England. But more importantly, as we gather... Unlike the train babble, Mrs. Farage does some kind of okay foreign language talking. 
So we've got a new duality here, bad language migrant, good language migrant. Let's not look for logic here. This is more populist flame-throwing. Farage's next bit of language is doing something classic. It's the politician's rhetoric of recruitment. This could be done by using the word you when at very best the politician means I. So apparently if Romanians moved in, you would be concerned. This is because, says Farage, Romanians commit crimes. Here the word migrant is of course attached to criminality, one of the main props for selling newspapers for as long as anyone has been identified as a migrant. Comparing crime figures by nationality doesn't compare like with like. Nationalities come to a country with very different amounts of money in their pockets and very different CVs in their bags. In this particular case, if we want to find out if there is or is not anything surprising or distinctive going on, a comparison might be fairer between, say, different groups of poor young single males. Even so, criminality is not an objective measure. It's a measure as done by the police. Since the Stevenson report, it's now public knowledge that how and why the police make arrests is not an unbiased matter. But Farage's purpose is to avoid nuance, keep it short, attach the word migrant to criminality. And then he performs another old dodge of the anti-migrant, the verbal nudge-nudge. When asked why a Romanian moving in next door would be different from someone like Mrs Farage moving in, he says, you know what I mean. This nudge-nudge phrasing is ideal if you don't want to be accused of being racist. While saying everything, it appears to say nothing. It makes the listener responsible for the racism. The bad migrant, the invading neighbour, is here attached to whatever bad thoughts might be swirling around in your mind. Given that newspapers have worked overtime for well over a hundred years suggesting that migrants have a particular interest, on account of being migrant, in committing unspeakable crimes, we might ask, why wouldn't I do as Farage suggests and nudge-nudge know what he means? In fact, some of us don't. We resist the nudge. And then back with the foreign language question, it's clear that Farage would rather make the linguistic complexity of the migration very simple. Foreigners speak foreign. And yet he must be intimately acquainted with how nuanced these things can be. How his wife has come, we might suspect, to be very fluent in English. How their children are growing up bilingual. How he too perhaps has some grasp of his partner's language. How as a family they mingle words and expressions across at least two languages. And if he wanted to be honest, he could find out in a matter of minutes that this is precisely the situation that prevails in most migrant households. A mixture of language use across two or more languages. Far from this being strange or problematic, this is what happens in billions of households all over the world. What is strange and problematic is that Farage appears to think that it's strange or problematic. Appears to. Surely it isn't problematic down at the Farages. So why is he saying that it is for others? Because the script of anti-migration speak says to Farage, go on about foreigners talking foreign. Attach migrants to the idea that they get together in huddles precisely in order to stop you understanding what they're saying. Suggest without saying that as migrants are attached to criminality, then you good English folks within earshot are entitled to think that the reason why foreigners are talking foreign on our trains is so that they can plan to burgle your house. <laughs> without you English people knowing about it. After all, before there were migrants, no one went burglaring. <laughs> there was, as Farage implies, a time when there was a pre-migrant London. 
and this never-existing pre-migrant London was a burglar-free zone. <laughs> so by comparing Obama's rhetoric with that of Jenkins and Farage's, we can see that politicians have options on how to speak about migrants. But so far this talk has hardly touched on another matter in the language of migration, the voice of the migrants. Let me get personal, and as I do so, I hope you'll compare your family and historical experiences of migration. My father was born in the United States. He came to London when he was two. His father, who was born in Poland, stayed in the United States, along with two of my father's brothers, who had been born in London. My father's mother was born in England. Her mother and father were born in Poland. I don't expect you to remember any of that. <laughs> Indeed, in many migrant families, even family members find it hard to remember this sort of thing. We have to write it down. It's the stuff of a hundred stories, coincidences, losses and strange meetings. Poland, for many Jewish immigrants and immigrants, was known in Yiddish as Deheim, which literally means home, but it came to mean the homeland or something more vague like back there. Again, the culture of migration creates popular shorthand phraseology that doesn't tally neatly with the concerns of politicians with their cricket-supporting tests and nationality exams. In the case of the term Deheim, it's transnational. Jews of many different nationalities all over the world called it that. The language of migration crosses many borders. In this passage I'm about to read, you'll hear the Yiddish words for grandfather, which is Zayda, grandmother, which is Bubba, and a crazy person, which is Meshuggana. Part of the language of migrants is that they often talk in many tongues, like this. Here's my father writing. We would stand by the edge of the grubby old public swimming pool, drying ourselves, my Zayda and I. As likely as not, he would tell me once again about how he would go swimming back in Deheim, somewhere in Poland. I would listen to this fragment of his boyhood. Always I saw him in some Arcadian setting of endless pine trees and velvet grass sloping down to a still lake. It was always early morning. He would emerge from a log cabin, run to the water and fracture its stillness with strong strokes. He would go on swimming till he was lost to view. There were no other people, no other houses, no other movements. It was an idyll I clung to from which I had banished pogroms and poverty and the fearful little community huddled over their prayers and sewing machines. This was my story, not his. And when we went on day trips to South End, East London seaside, in his 60s he would set out to swim the length of the pier and back a mile or so each way. My bubba, without fail, went through the identical torments of anxiety. The Meshuggahner has gone out too far again. I was free from all such fears, for he was always the intrepid boy swimmer in the pure lake who always came back. And he did. And even in death, still does. So my father carried about an image of another place, a mythic place of origin which he shared with me and my brother through language. And there's this. Zayda's jokes baffled me at first. And I would have to put on a phony laugh at stories I wasn't ready for. He once told me of the great sage, Rabbi Nachman. I've heard it in dozens of versions since. The old rabbi was on his deathbed, and his devoted disciples gathered round and took their last chance to ask him the great question. Rabbi Nachman, tell us, what is life? 
They waited for a long time, fearful that they wouldn't hear a reply. At long last, the rabbi gasped out, Life is like a fish. Baffled, they hastily conferred and came back to his bedside. Rabbi Nachman, why is life like a fish? The old man looked at them. So, it's not like a fish. <laughs> Zayda gave the rabbi's reply the tone of impatient irritation. <coughs> How was this a joke? The adults loved it, relished it, and would repeat. So, it's not like a fish, and fell about. In due course, I came to laugh too. What do stories like this tell us? Lines of language, thought, and culture that persist across countries and across time. No matter what Jenkin and Farage say, the word migrant, in my mind, is much more attached to these lines than to the lines they want to make. And though there's nothing wrong with sentiment and nostalgia, from my position of comfort, it's easy to forget that some of these lines are stories of persecution, separation, hardship, humiliation, or worse. In my father's writing, there are memories of relatives talking about Cossacks charging at people in Russia, but also of standing between his mother and grandfather on a demonstration during the general strike of 1926. A few months ago, my stepmother came to the house with a little plastic jar full of odds and ends that had belonged to my father, some dating back to the 1920s. In amongst them was a small brass brooch in the shape of a miner's lamp. I looked it up on the internet and discovered that such brooches were sold to support the miners' families who were on strike or locked out after everyone else went back to work during and after the general strike. I can't be certain, but it probably belonged to his mother or Zayda. When I hear that the word migrant has to be tested for its owner's allegiance to Britain, I think that that's only one kind of allegiance. Isn't there an allegiance to the people around us? I have to spell it out for myself, perhaps for you, or perhaps not. Here are these people standing behind me with their memories of a real or mythic Heim, telling mythic jokes about Rabbi Nachman, and buying a brooch to send money to South Wales or Yorkshire or Lanarkshire for families who, according to the migrant versus native Britain scenario, lived lives utterly different from my relatives, or indeed, said the propaganda of the day, utterly opposed to each other. Whichever of the two main stereotypes attached to Jews of the time, as rich as Baron Rothschild, or as poor, stingy, filthy, greasy and jabbering, as in William Makepeace Thackeray's poem, The White Squall, neither of them would have included buying a brooch for hungry miners' families. As I'm doing right now, I write about such things. Because of that, I, like other writers, become magnets for other people's tales. My second cousin wrote to me a few years ago to say that his mother's second husband had left behind some papers. In the papers, there were letters and cards that had been sent from Poland and France during the Second World War. They were in German. Sender, Rosen, 11 rue Melaise Niort, De Sèvres, France, addressee, Monsieur Max Rosen, 96 West Cedar Street, Boston, Mass. Niort, March the 23rd, 1940. My dears, only today did I receive your dear letter. I hope that you already received my card. We're glad to hear that you're in good health and I can tell you the same from us. We were very pleased to receive your letter and we thank you very much. I just learned from you that dear Bella is no more in Biala. I've tried to make inquiries, but unfortunately I can't get any information. I'm very surprised that you've not received any news from Poland. You live in a neutral country, 
Therefore, it's much easier for you to find out something about our sisters in Poland. Who knows whether they're still alive? I'm giving you the following addresses. Write immediately. Also, let me know right away whether you received this card. You may also write to me in Yiddish. And the writer mentions Taya Weinstock, Stella Rechnitz, uh, Rechnitz spelt there. I learned that it's best to write in Polish to Poland and up to 25 words, not more. If you receive a letter from Poland, only send me a copy. Nothing else new, as I'm awaiting good news. Best regards, your brother and brother-in-law, Oscar. My dear wife also sends you many regards and wishes you the best, awaiting immediate answers, as it takes very long. Handwritten registered postcard with German stamps, airmail stamp and a German military censorship stamp, sent from Dombrovo, which is in Silesia. Addressee, Mr. Max Rosen, Boston, Mass., January the 22nd, 1941. Dear brother, I've written to you several times and urged you fervently to take in my only child, Michael, whose address is given as being in a barrack in the Soviet Union in Siberia. He went away from Lemberg, and only America can rescue him. Therefore, I'm fervently asking you to take the necessary steps immediately. Many thousands have already gone to America. I'm asking you again and fulfill my request. I've sent you my son's birth certificate, born November the 16th, 1923, in Dombrova. What are you doing, my dears? Kisses to you and your dear wife. Maybe for now you can send him a few dollars. I beg you very much. Handwritten postcards with German stamps and airmail stamps, sender Bernard Rechnitz, Dombrova, addressee Mr. Max Rosen, Dombrova, February the 11th, 1941. Dear brother, I hope you've already taken the steps to take in my son. Maybe you could adopt him to make this work. Dear brother, I urge you, for now send him a few dollars and packages with food because he has nothing. I fervently urge you to send something as soon as possible. Don't be upset with me, but only you, remainder of the sentence obscured by airmail stamp, kisses to you and to your dear wife and children, your sister Stella. Then there are no more letters. So to be clear here, the letters survived because they were passed from the recipient, Max Rosen, to his son Ted, who left them with his divorced wife. She left them with her second husband, and when he died, they were passed on to his stepson, my second cousin, Ted Jr. I asked Ted Jr. why his father hadn't kept them. My theory, he said, is because they were all ashamed that none of the senders of the letters, Stella, Bernard, Bella, and Taya in Poland, and Oscar and his wife in France, survived beyond 1944. In France, the prefects and sub-prefects who are a kind of civil servant between national and local government, made lists of foreign-born Jews, migrants, that is, and handed them to the occupying power, an example of how the official language of migration can be used. Oscar and his wife were rounded up in Nice and sent to Paris, to the transit camp of Drancy, and then to Auschwitz. Michael did survive. Migration saved his life, another connotation which can be attached to the word migrant, life-saving. He spent all his working life as a London cab driver and lives in Stanmore. When we sent him these letters, he said that he had always wondered who sent him $50 while he was in a Russian prison camp in Siberia, and now he knew. It must have come from his father's, his father's brother, no, sorry, his mother's brother, Max. Fragments of language preserved in letters across decades, suddenly solving old mysteries. 
A few years ago, I was sitting in a classroom in Hackney and we were talking about the different languages we spoke and the different countries that people came from. A child spoke to the teacher and I wrote down what he said. He doesn't speak English, miss. He comes from the Congo, miss. I translate for you, miss. He says that the bad men take his grandfather. He says that the bad men take his grandmother. He says that the bad men take his dad. He says that the bad men take his mum. He doesn't say how he got here, miss. He can't say how he got here, miss. I'll finish with what we might take as the mother of all interviews about migrants. It provided the key word swamp, which along with other synonyms not used by Margaret Thatcher on this occasion, like flood and swarm, has provided metaphors for a thousand articles and speeches since. It was January 1978 and Margaret Thatcher connected swamped with the words people are really rather afraid, followed a moment later with fear and people being rather hostile to those coming in. I think this is all I remembered from the interview, but going back over it, I find that I've forgotten a great deal. It was also here that Margaret Thatcher invoked the superiority of the British, British characteristics that have done so much for the world. And the essential item in the anti-migrants toolbox, the contrast between the word migrant and the word people as in, the moment the minority threatens to become a big one, people get frightened. For a flicker of a second, we could be forgiven here for thinking that the minority aren't people, or that the normal and good thing to be is people, and the strange and scary thing to be is a migrant. Whether intentionally or not, this language structure has been repeated a thousand times since. In the sentence, the people are not the minority. If you're going to play with contrasts and opposites, the linguistic counterpart to a minority is a majority. It's not people. So we are shown, without it being said explicitly, that the minority are not people. As I've suggested, this kind of sentence is comrade in arms is any that finds ways of reducing or distorting migrants into objects, as with the endless supply of cheap labour. Bernard Jenkins, you'll remember, counterposed that phrase with the public interest. What both Jack Thatcher and Jenkins do with their language is to deliberately not give us a picture of a majority minority making up a whole population, a whole people. They use all-inclusive words like people and public interest at the very same moment they're suggesting that there is a particular kind of non-human creature who is not part of that inclusiveness. In logical terms, it's an absurdity. Migrants are part of the people. Migrants are part of the public interest. Everywhere that is, apart from in these kinds of sentences. The British political scene is changing. Mark Reckless implied, and then unimplied, that he thinks that it would be desirable or necessary to deport migrants. Having flagged this up as a possibility, his head office denied it. It's okay, the deed was done. The word migrant was attached to the idea of deportation. If I was someone who says that there are too many migrants, then the logical next step from there is to say that some of them must be got rid of, removed. And if I was then wondering who would be the most likely party to do the removing then, surely I would now know that it would be Mark Reckless's party, even if the party did deny it a nudge-nudge. Because they've denied it, we can't quiz them on how precisely these deportations would be handled. What do they have in mind? Snatch squads? Armed guards? Armoured trains? Transit camps? But this is an inadmissible conversation. It lies in the land behind and beyond the language of migration. 
In some ways, because it's not said, it's the most powerful use of language of all. It's in some people's heads. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Michael, very much indeed. Uh, now, we have plenty of time for questions. There'll be some roving microphones. And if you could stick your hands up, we'll take them, I believe, in clusters of three is the approved LSA way of answering questions. So I hope you've got a good memory. I've, I've got a pen. But it's also helpful if you keep the questions fairly short, otherwise Michael will faint. Um, so let's begin. Thank you. So we have... A lady at the front here, if we can get a microphone. And if you could just take microphones to people when you see their hands up. I don't need to point out for everybody. Lady at the front. Hello. Um, you've gave, given us a very interesting historical view about migration, but you've said nothing about net migration at the present time in this country. We are the most overcrowded country in Europe. We can't afford to feed ourselves. We're having to allow a lot of young people in to do jobs which we should have trained our own young people to do. Um, I could go on, but I recommend people to look at the website of Population Matters to learn more about what I'm trying to say. And there was a gentleman over there. Um, Emily Thornbury was um, fired as um, Shadow Attorney uh, General the other day by showing uh, an image, a display of a house covered in Union Jacks. Um, Sorry, just this, a point of information. It was two St. George flags. It was actually three. Three. But, but they, weren't, they weren't Union Jacks, that's all. No, sorry, yes, but it was, it was covered in, in, in English flags. Apparently this, in language terms, translates into this is a hard-working man who is patriotic. As a, as a language expert, do you share the sentiment or do you think it could mean something else to the migrants that live up and down the road? Do we have another question? Yes, there's a lady just in front of you there. Thank you. It's, it's really just a, a point. I don't know if it's really a question, although you may have something interesting to say about it. And I have to be careful what I say because it's an ongoing court case. But I've been following the um, Old Bailey prosecution of the three guards who um, uh, uh, are accused of ma the manslaughter of uh, Jimmy Mubenga, an Angolan man who was being deported, forced deportation from this country. And I've followed the whole case right from the start. And one of the things that struck me is exactly what you came to at the end of your speech, which is that um, the word deportee in the inquest, but also now in the Old Bailey, is, has been used by witnesses, and I would say by, by members of the um, British justice system, almost kind of tantamount to definitely somebody who's non-human, non less than human, um, and the language that's coming out of the court case, which a lot of it is quite difficult to talk about now, but it just, I just feel it's so fantastic to come to your talk and to hear somebody speaking so sort of, you know, with so much energy about stuff that's right beneath, you know, it's happening right now. People are being, people have been killed already who are being 
forced deportation, and they're, they're treated like animals. They really, really are worse than animals, actually. Thanks very much. I agree. Now, while Michael answers, if you'd like to move the microphones to other people who have their hands up, but to go back to the first question, I mean, can one deny that there is an overcrowding issue? Uh, let's deal with that first question. First of all, we live in a country, people focus in, immediately on migration numbers. We live in a country that is, as indeed Patrick Jenkin referred to, massively unequal. So the issue I will always start with is not the migration, but the issue of the distribution of resources. Okay? So I come from a particular political perspective, as some people will know, and as far as I'm concerned, we're talking about billions and billions and billions that are sitting in a tiny, tiny minority of people's hands. So when people start talking about poor people being under pressure from other poor people, I raise an eyebrow, because... Poor people don't take other poor people's jobs. The people who hire and fire are people with large amounts of resources. So whatever pressures are going on at the moment, we never start from a level playing field. We start from the idea that poor people should be poor. Yes, the rich man in his castle, the poor man at his gate. That's where we start from. So I never accept the premise of the argument. As far as I'm concerned, as long as capital can move its capital about in the world, then people have the right to defend themselves against whatever privations are caused by the movement of capital. Now, we've just come to a point in history where the super-rich people burnt trillions. That money was one way or another. It belonged to a tiny, tiny group of people, and they burnt it. And as a consequence, pressures are put on poor people. We hear that, you know, they, those, people, those rich people have made sacrifices. Well, the sacrifice made by the super, super rich is that they become super rich. Sacrifice, sacrifices made by poor people is that they starve and have nowhere to live. So some, a good deal of what's going on to do with migration is connected to that. So I, in a sense, I won't engage with the argument about net migration or whatever. I just feel that people, and it's my strong belief, people are allowed and must be allowed to migrate wherever they want so long as capital is allowed to migrate. If we get to a point where we're going to start saying, well, over here we're going to have little enclaves where capital can't migrate and people are going to live there, it'll never happen. But if they want to do that, then OK, we'll talk about restrictions on migration. But until then... I'm not even prepared to countenance the argument. That's where I come from. The second question question was interesting, I thought. The language of flags, because not so long ago, that was the language of a football hooligan, an English football hooligan abroad. And it was quite... Uh, disliked by a lot of people. Yes. Now it was a very sensitive political issue last week. Um, personally, I find absolutely nothing offensive in the St George flag. I can't think why I should. I mean, if I found the St George flag offensive, I'd have to find all flags offensive. And to, in a marginal way, I do. Um, <laughs> no, no, I mean, seriously, you know, I'd, I'm not in favour of the nation state. So. You know, you remember the John Lennon song. Well, I haven't moved on since then, you know, you can see. Um, So, yes, I do imagine a world in which we have no nations. So, given that we do have nations, I I can't see why I would object to the St George flag any more than I would object to the 
the saltire or, or object to the American flag or any flag. It's not the flag that is the problem. So if some geezer wants to put some flags outside his house, that doesn't have a problem for me. If there are people, and you say that there are, who do find it objectionable because at times people like the National Front, the BNP and other right-wing organisations have waved flags about, well, again, that's not the flag's fault. <laughs> now, as it happens... This guy who was trumpeted as the kind of, the Daily Telegraph put it this way, the kind of person that Labour should attract um, is not someone who, under most terms of reference, could be described as working class. The guy's a car dealer, and as it happens in his spare time, is a cage fighter. So his earnings come from fees and sales, right? It's completely irrelevant to my mind whether he has a white van or not. I don't care what kind of van he's got. So, you know, good luck to the bloke. Yeah, no, not even that, sorry, yeah. So, you know, good luck to the guy. Now, some people may read off those signals some things and others will read off others. Now, I think that's quite a dangerous territory to get into if people are offended by just purely the, the, the semiology of the guy, then I think we're in bad trouble. I say that from my side, the left side. We, we shouldn't do that. That's, that's, in a sense, collapsing to the ideals of the right. So, as far as I'm concerned, the guy's entitled to do anything. Once he opens his mouth, then all sorts of rather strange and repulsive things come out of his mouth. If that is the case, well, then we can argue. I mean, as far as I know, he just said, there are, I think he said, people round here who object to my putting out flags, and then he seemed to suggest that he wasn't bothered by that. Well, in its own way, that is not of itself a problem. Much more of a problem is the fact that Ed Miliband thought that he had to sack somebody from just taking a photograph of it. Maybe she was sneering, maybe she wasn't. I don't know. I don't know Emily Thornbury. And there'll be plenty of people in her constituency who put flags out exactly like that. I would suspect that that's her bigger problem. The, the third question was about deportee, another, another word that's been deliberately and energetically dehumanised. I mean, we've seen a lot, and you talked about Indeed. the way in which, you know, the word migrant in newspapers and politics yeah, no, now I, pretty much means, you know, plague rats. Yes, but, I, um, I take your point entirely that we have already moved into the language in which a deportee must, of course, be wrong and a criminal... We don't go back and see why are they being deported or, indeed, what are we doing deporting people. Famously, uh, may she rest in peace, Joy Gardner, you know, was suffocated to death, or, I have to put this very, very carefully, legally, she died as a result of asphyxiation, quite how or why has been disputed, and it was not said that she was killed. She, her head and face were taped. Nobody was found guilty. She was a Jamaican woman who had toed and froed between Jamaica and Britain in a way that plenty of people had been entitled to, and after all, the, the British had benefited from plantations in Jamaica for centuries. The wealth of this country partly relies on the wealth that was created in Jamaica through the sugar plantations. So it was absolutely outrageous that there was, this woman became a criminal, and of course beyond outrageousness with the fact that she died at the hands of the uh, immigration security staff. So yes, we are already in a situation in which we are able to hide away these deportations that are going on. Only two years ago I received a petition that there were underage children being held in Yarlswood. These were asylum seekers' children. They were not only being held there, they were separate from their parents. So how did that come about? And only when a stink was created by uh, people who knew about it much more than I did, as far as I know, this particular piece of abuse has been lifted. But 
not, not, in, not in any great sense, just purely that the children are not as isolated as they were. So we are already in a situation in which all this language and rhetoric that I'm talking about, if you like, legitimates these anti-humane uh, acts. We'll look for some more questions. There's, do we have microphones in people's hands? Hello. Uh, could I, I don't want to ask a question. I have a request. Could you please send a copy of your passionate speech to Mr. Farage? Thank you. I don't know if it's being recorded. I think it may be. If, if it is, as, as Florence and Swan used to say, you're, where you're sitting is exactly where you'll be on the record. But um, if the speech is the speech, um, be available. I'm just cutting in on that. So we don't I typed it up on my computer. I will put it up on my blog, uh, if that's all right with Migration Museum folks. I'll put it up on my blog probably tomorrow. Uh, perhaps missing one or two of my asides, but anyway, we'll see about that. Um, and I'll put it up on my blog, and I'll link to it on Twitter and Facebook, so uh, it'll be available uh, for anybody and anywhere, wherever. So uh, I'm sure Nigel Farage is an avid reader of my blog. Um, <laughs> and uh, he'll be dashing to it even now. Uh, let's carry on. So, gentlemen... Oh, sorry. I, apart from the German and Yiddish, uh, you were mainly talking not so much about the languages of migration, but of uh, English, example, and the uses of the English language. I wonder if you could say something about the other languages of migration, which are metaphorical, statistics. We had one example of that. So I, mean, I certainly noticed that very often articles talk about migration as if it was purely inward and completely ignore the outward movements. And the other is the language of maps and how good and bad they can be. I think it was about 2006 that The Guardian published a couple of wonderful maps. The world, I think it was London, the world in one city, and Britain, the world in one country, showing so different groups you know, who had originated elsewhere. Now, that can be a very positive thing for celebrating diversity, but one suspects it can also be abused and, and so made to regard others and minorities as dangerous. Mm. Is there another microphone? Yes, I'd like to take up a more general question from the examples that were given about the Jimmy Mubenga case. And by the way, in the mid-20th century, Woody Guthrie wrote a song called Deportee, which is exactly about the same issue, racist language, dehumanizing people. Now, Michael rightly said that this racist language of migration or migrants justifies racist practices. I want to ask the question the other way around, how the practices may normalize the language and so reinforce each other. For example, when every time the, for example, these vans were going around London telling so-called illegal migrants or illegal immigrants to go home. Every time more people are locked up in these inhuman detention centers, every time these uh, uh, migration police go around parts of London with, with their brightly colored uniforms, and they aren't challenged, although I have uh, challenged them. Told, them, told them to go home. 
<laughs> Every time these practices continue and are not contested, then that normalizes the link between yeah. the language Well, I think we have someone here who will be happy to contest them. So um, the first question, Mark, I, mean, I think you've already yes. talked about your deep and profound love of statistics. Yeah. So maybe we should concentrate on maps. Um, yeah, I mean, you, you've said it perfectly yourself. I can't really add very much to the, the map question. Um, I'm not a, a geographer. My brother is, or a geologist, anyway. Uh, so I always feel slightly inhibited the moment I start talking about a map in case he'll come and tell me off. Um, he's an older brother who knows a lot about maps. Um, I think the, the issue of the statistics, um, indeed... Um, I mean, you heard Barbara at the very beginning. You know, if we start, start doing sums, it's whose sums and who's been where. I think, that very interestingly, Barbara reminds us that, that there are people all over the world, I think she came up with the figure 60 million, who say, um, you know, my origins are there in the British Isles. I suspect that probably includes Ireland. Um, and, which, after all, was once part of a, some kind of united Britain, uh, no matter how reluctantly. And um, so... The way in which people interpret these inward and outward flows, uh, of course, de always depends on where you actually fix the flow. It's very, very hard, both in language and on maps or anywhere else, to be dynamic and to show things over time. So the migrations that everybody in this room has experienced, you know, w what is the time that we're going to look at? We're going to say net migration for one year, two years, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, 100 years. You know, the complexity of migration is that it is over time. What we have to do is accept the fact that the world is the world migrates. We all move. Sometimes we are moved, and of course this is, may often be terrible. Sometimes people move into other people's countries and try to kill them. That is, of course, terrible. It's called war. But, you know, one way or another, it all comes under the heading of move. And we have to accept the idea that we move and get on with working out how we can actually create a world that is fair. It's not migration that makes the world unfair. It's unfairness that makes the world unfair. It's inequality. So we keep... It's a very useful diversion. Some would say a scapegoat to be blaming poor people for poverty. Yes, it's called blaming the victim. That's what most of the migration watch, migration alert, anti-migrant speech is all about. It is about blaming poor people for poverty okay poor people don't create poverty poverty is created out of an economic system which believe it or not i'm not going to talk about now <laughs> and is part of that this consistent dehumanization of the language i mean the gentleman asked about the way things get normalized i mean we yes. saw a trajectory didn't we in the way that the term asylum seeker which went from being a um, you know, the, the, the plight of the refugee to being a kind of idle sponger in the space of a few short years. It's quite clear that politicians in league with the press can demonise sections of the population in a matter of moments. So, you know, we have hard-working people, therefore we must presumably have non-hard-working people. So these what, are people slacking at work. Moment you turn, start ring-fencing people, so we have hard-working people and we have spongers. But also, if you have hard-working people, you must also have people going to work who aren't working hard enough, right? In Which can, Yes, and you can have decent families indeed. As, as Robert just said, you must therefore have indecent families. There's probably quite a few here tonight. Um, so, you know, that's what language can do. But I, I take your point 
that, you know, we're talking today about language. I'm not somebody who is called, in theoretical terms, a linguistic determinist. That's to say, I don't think that language creates reality. So, yes, I fully take your point that what we have are real situations taking place that give birth to language, and then language can help shape consciousness in one way or another, but all the time it's being supported by everyday practice, and that these things are presented to us that uh, either as normal or, of course, are hidden, as, as, as the lady here mentioned about uh, the Angolan person who was killed on board an aeroplane. Um, I think I'm allowed to say killed. And uh, No, probably not, sorry. I don't want to get people into... I, I can say that, can I? I never know which state in the legal case. Anyway, he died and perhaps unlawfully killed. Anyway, um, yes, indeed, these things are taking place. And, of course, it's how they are normalised through language that is the key thing, whether they are presented as an outrage, which, incredibly, that's what Obama did. I mean, you know, I, I am not a fan of Obama's foreign policy, as you might suspect, or indeed many of his policies, but this, that speech is extraordinary in terms of the history of rhetoric about migrants in which he, if you, in a sense, went out of his way not, not to demonise people, pointing out that pe such people are usually demonised and then saying that he wasn't, but that these people were brave. It's a piece of language and a piece of rhetoric it is quite extraordinary coming from you know someone who is a prime minister or president of a country i think possibly the first time i've ever heard anything like that um so whatever attitudes i might have to overall to obama i'm laying those to one side i'm saying it is quite extraordinary that that was said and is a great reminder of you know in an ideal world what politicians would and could be able to say so from your point of view is the in the important way to resist the kind of dehumanising rhetoric? Is it to be always focused on the individual person, the actual human being, not the role? Um, I think as individuals, we're always in society. We're always in social situations. The great advantage of talking about individuals for a moment is that they become representative. So if, like, like Obama did and talked about Astrid Silva, then immediately millions of people could say, oh, I know an Astrid Silva. That's the purpose and function of such a talk. I'm in the writing business. You know, that's what writers do. You know, somebody puts on a play and uh, a guy comes on and says, uh, you won't believe it, but my brother killed me. I would really like it if you took revenge. And the guy goes, yeah, what a great idea. I'll revenge. I will, Dad. I will. I'll revenge you. And then he finds it difficult and he spends about four hours finding it difficult. And it's called Hamlet. And... <laughs> and you think it's Hamlet and you, you care about Hamlet and you go, go on, do it, kill the bastard, will you? Kill him. And he goes, no, I can't because he's praying and if I kill him, he'll go to heaven and you go, oh, bugger it, you should have done, you should have done. We care about it and then you go away or while you're there and you're thinking, I've been like that, I know someone else like that and you go on and on and you generalise. Now, that's how individual stories can work when you hold them up but I'm not somebody who believes it is, in a sense, only the individual that counts you know, the Woody Guthrie song, The Song of the Deportees, is an incredible song. He talks about individuals, but it's called The Song of the Deportees, I think, yes? Yes, indeed. And, of course, he generalises and uh, individualises at the same time, and that is indeed what we have to do. There is not one migrant. There are, you know, millions and millions and trillions of migrants around the world. You know, but, yes, they are all people. They are not cheap labour. We might refer to them very briefly as something like that, but that is not their defining characteristic, Mr Jenkins. We have time for one more round of questions before we wrap up. So right from the back. 
Um, there's an organization in Brussels called PICUM, which stands for the Platform for International Cooperation on Undocumented Migrants. And this year they released a campaign against the use of the term illegal migrants, the use of the term illegal as an epithet to um, describe migrants. Um, but that still leaves a problem because, um, as their name suggests, it's, um, they talk about undocumented migrants, which comes from the French sans-papier, really, um, or irregular migrants. But equally, those are labels that are also attached to categories of migrants because migrants, in many cases, uh, have particular legal statuses in relation to other people. And I'd be interested in your comments on this whole question of the naming of different kinds of migrants with different kinds of legal statuses and how that feeds in to the uh, xenophobia and racism that's associated with hostility to migrants. Thank you. Another question? Yes, sir. Um, um, the, there are variations or gradations of the type of uh, immigrant and the way societies deal with them. I come from Iran, and there the Afghans suffer a great deal, although the Iraqis do not, because our leader of the House of Parliament was born in Iraq. The Minister of Justice is Iraqi born. And you will notice that this, they don't get the same level of antipathy. And I guess it's the same here as well. And we will get, for example, a somewhat different treatment of a Frenchman from a Polish man. Yeah, sure. And one last question. Who has a microphone? I'm sorry I haven't got time for all of you. Oh, yes. Um, I was just wondering uh, what your views would be uh, on the basis that it's arguable that the English language itself is one of the greatest forms of evidence of uh, the status of migration in this country, in the history of migration, the etymology of the English language, especially from 1066 onwards. What the current, uh, what, I wonder what your thoughts would be on the current sort of atmosphere of migration, the style of migration in this very uh, sort of open and yet sort of closed world that we live in and, and with the internet and such, at the rate of change of the English language and how we use it in terms of grammar and syntax today as a result. I wonder what your thoughts would be on that. Excellent. So to take those in turn, the first one was about the naming of migrants. And it's true that it, a lot, it often moves organically. I mean, when I was writing my book, I mean, it was very much, you know, in the very early days of Britain, you know, someone from Kent would have thought of someone from Sussex as a, as a bloody foreigner. And as the world has dissolved and enlarged, those terms move. Whether a bureaucracy can stick a label up that it confidently, a new label, and it prefers irregular to EU, I don't mm. know. Well, in fact, I think those two questions are sort of in the same territory. If we ask ourselves, slightly Tony Benn-like, uh, who is naming the migrants as different and why, we have come up face-to-face -face with the, the sad truth that most bureaucracies act on their own behalf. Every now and then we force them to act on our behalf, but most of the time it is for their convenience, whether it's road widening or 
administering of social services, more often than not, bureaucracies are acting in order to make their running of the bureaucracy simpler. This wasn't observed first by me. It was observed first, I think, by Hegel. But anyway, or at least there'll be somebody here who can inform me otherwise. But I think he thought the bureaucracies were utterly neutral. Sorry, I'll withdraw that immediately. I think you got there before Hegel, actually. Yeah, oh, thank you. Good. Yeah, my Uncle Hegel. Um, <laughs> right. The issue is, is who are these... It applies everywhere, in, you know, in education everywhere. Who are the terms for... If we sitting here are the people and are trying to act on behalf of the people and for the people and with the people, then those are the terms that we should use. When bureaucrats come up with terms, it is inevitably for the purpose of the government of the day, which will be pursuing interests other than for itself, but also for large, powerful interests outside of Parliament so or outside of government. Now... Of course, there will be gradations. Now, obviously, you're trying to be, lady here, you're trying to be in, a, in, a, in a, an organisation that is campaigning for a form of equality, but you're struggling with the fact that the authorities provide documents to some and not to others. Uh, it's as if you really, in ideal terms, would like to have, always in parenthesis, undocumented, thanks to the authorities, documented thanks to the authorities after each one, because it's, about, it's a question of alignment, of itself saying undocumented. I mean, you remember Jack Straw walked around talking about clandestines for about six months until somebody knocked him on the head. Um, and indeed, as you say, sans papier is all over the newspapers in France. So all you can say is it whatever term helps you campaign best for the people that you're trying to campaign for. The moment a term is an obstacle for your campaigns, chuck it out. That's all I would say. Um, the last question. It's a kind of imponderable about change. There's no evidence that the language is... The language. The many ways in which English is spoken, or if you want to call it Englishes, the many ways in which the Englishes are spoken around the world are changing any more quick, any faster now than they did in the past. You know, linguists, when they look at Shakespeare, can say the language was changing incredibly quickly, even as Shakespeare was writing. So, you know, that... Uh, go into the details of it, but, you know, that, that even as he's writing, the, the D-O-T-H, doth, was becoming a bit antiquated. You know, you can spot things through history of of ways of speaking and ways of writing that are changing all the time. Uh, you know, the pronunciation of the way in which uh, people in this room say the, the word K-N-O-W, no, uh, probably across this room we all say it in a slightly different way. Some people will say no, some people will say no, some people will say, uh, anyway, various other forms. <laughs> now um, and we coexist with these different forms all the time if you go to Ireland you'll find people will say film uh, I say film I don't, I don't, nothing happens with my tongue when I go past the I and into the M I just go film um, it all happens at the back of my mouth so you know the changes that happen are happening all the time whether they're happening faster because there are more migrants I, I would think at this very moment here in London I don't know. I'm, I'm just about to start a new series of word of mouth on Radio 4. I'm going to be side by side in the studio with someone who, whose work has primarily been on the language of London, Laura Wright. 
Um, and I think at times she will refer to language change. It's her big interest. So tune in and you will hear from a, a true linguist, not a pretend one like me, um, as to what is the state of affairs. But, um, but very few linguists, as far as I know, say that language change kind of speeds up and then slows down. There's a strange idea that if you have a, a community that sits on its own for a while, unaffected by war, uh, invasion or invading outwards or invading inwards or colonisation or any of these things, that its language stays stable. It doesn't. New Zealand, if there's anyone here from New Zealand, will know that there is a very strange thing, what's called a vowel shift, not a bowel shift, a vowel shift, <laughs> going on in New Zealand. If you take the two words pin and pen, they are actually going in that direction. Pin is sounding more like pen, and pen is sounding more like pin, or maybe it's the other way, but anyway, there you go. But so, and it's, that's been going on, you know, quite recently, in the last 10 years. Australian accents have changed just in the last 10 years. But those shifts of pronunciation aside, just to take the, 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 the questioner's point, I mean, the English that was sort of handed down to all of us, it's sort of, I think they say, 60% German, and then lots of French, Norman, and Italian, and with accents from India and the imperial wanderings abroad. I mean, as you go into schools now in London, do you not sense an acceleration of use of new words on Twitter and new technologies and things? Is it not possible that there may be something? Do you see it? Okay. Um, so if you break language into its sort of three useful component parts, I'd say useful for linguists, not for anybody else, okay, we talk about lexis, which is vocabulary, you talk about syntax or grammar, and then you talk about phonology, or if you like, pronunciation and accent. So there is these three levels. Now, language tends to be fairly stable at the grammatic level, grammatical level, very volatile at the pronunciation level, and less volatile... Um, in, in terms of, um, in t in t yeah, less volatile. It's, you cannot simply talk about language, that's what I'm trying to say, that in the three areas, the things move at different speeds, and also different sections of society change in different times. You only have to put a group of people together for a short while, and they will change their vocabulary, famously the RAF, so you took chaps, largely chaps, out of public school. You bunged them in this incredibly hazardous, brave and awful situation of knowing that every time you jumped into an aeroplane, you were going to, chances one of you wouldn't come back, if not more. And they developed in that circumstance a very quickly changing, uh, quickly changing vocabulary. Their grammar stayed the same. So, you know, you, had, you didn't say that you were going to um, crash your aeroplane. You said you were going to prang the crate. And this was a cover, as you generally reckon, for the terrible situation they were in, knowing that... But because they came from a particular social media, you didn't say, this is hell, you just said it's a bit tough over blighty. <laughs> so change is very difficult to map in language. All we know is that it does, but it happens at different speed in those three areas, and it happens in different ways in different sections of society. And, of course, migrants... Let's get it back to, totally to the subject. that migrants of course, are fascinating because more often than not, uh, well, not always, but anyway, quite often are coming in speaking a language other than the language that is in the country, the dominant language in the country, and then all sorts of changes happen in their speech. I know this in the history of my family, that quite quickly they started speaking what uh, is known in Jewish circles as Yinglish. That's to say, they'd say, do me a favour, which is a direct translation of Yiddish, took me a favour. So things like that, which then moved into English. 
English. But that's the way change happens through migration, is that groups come in, translate their, as it were, their mother tongue, Mamaloshan in Yiddish, and then translate it, and then it moves about. Just if one final last word on that, the word nosh, okay? At the end of every meal, my dad would say, is there any nosh? Now, the word nosh, apart from its border use, which I'm not going to go into now, all right, but its straight use in English has been that it means food, And it's always been confusing to me because, as far as I knew, it meant the particular kind of chocolate that my dad liked. On that note, I will leave you. Thank you. (laughs)